We've been working our way for about 32 years in the book of Isaiah. I've made it all the way to chapter 24, and that would have been our text this morning. It's the text that I prepared all week until about Thursday and Friday. I pulled an audible. For those of you who are not sports inclined, that's when the quarterback comes to the line and changes the play. I changed the play on Friday just because there were things burdening me, things that were on my heart weighing heavy on me, uh, specifically concerned with the discipling and the culture of our church. We've worked really hard over the course of six years by God's grace to build a culture of one anotherness in our church. Still a lot of room to grow, but there's been a lot of grace, and we've been so grateful for that. And it's as week after week has passed, I've only grown more burdened with the possibility of how only a few months of being isolated from one another can serve to undermine and begin to unravel a culture that we've worked really hard by God's grace to cultivate in the life of our church. And so you may remember back in January, I started a series on our church covenant. We started with the first three promises, specifically talking about our unity and our love. Well, today we're going to be on the fourth promise We talked about our unity as a church, our love as a church, our gathering regularly as a church, and now we're going to talk about our discipleship as a church. What does it look like for us to be discipling one another? And we'll call this the coronavirus version because there are unique challenges in this season. Because even though coronavirus and quarantine and things like that mean that we've got to take a break and adjust our life in lots of different ways, what we don't get to do is take a furlough from being disciples. We've got to figure out new ways, creative ways, to help one another follow Jesus in a way that's faithful to his word, and I hope that I can encourage you to that end. This is one of those sermons as a pastor that's really easy to preach, Because I don't feel like I have to do a whole lot of rebuking or correcting. It's just a lot of encouraging and exhorting, much like the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. This is a loving church. Oh, I pray your love would abound even more. Well, I pray that that would be the same with our church. That the majority of you are engaged with one another in some way throughout the week or every other week, trying to help one another follow Jesus. And I hope that this sermon is one that would seek to take whatever little ember or flame is there and just fan it further into flame, and that we would continue to grow even in this strange season. The fourth promise of our church covenant says this. That we will work to bring up those who are under our care in the fear and instruction of the Lord. It's a similar formulation that we find in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul admonishes fathers not to exasperate their children, but rather to, to... bring them up, to raise them, to to bring them into maturity according to the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But what fathers are commanded to do in the home is not anything unique. In fact, the pattern of instruction and of discipline in the home is a pattern that is seen and is emulated in the context of a local church. In fact, when you look at the whole of the New Testament, you find that the ongoing exhortations for members is to do the exact same thing for one another that fathers are called to do for their children. That is to be word-centered in their discipleship in such a way that all of us would grow up into maturity. And so fathers is... You look and wonder, how is it that I might be able to raise and train up my children? You look at the church. And church, as we consider how we might raise up and encourage one another to grow into spiritual maturity, we might look to faithful fathers and go, that's what we should be doing as a community. We should be discipling one another, raising one another up. Let me just say this again, and I want you to notice that there are four components to this promise, this promise that we're making according to God's word to help one another follow Jesus. The first component is that we will work together. 
This is a cooperative ministry. It's not a ministry of the select few. It's not a ministry that belongs exclusively to the elders or the pastors or to those that we might deem to be maybe a little bit more spiritual, spiritually mature. There's no varsity or junior varsity in the church. That all of us are on the same team. Some of us might have been playing a little bit longer. Some of us might be yet at this point a little bit stronger. But we're all on the team and we're all playing and we're all working together for a common goal. And that is that we would grow into Christ-likeness. So we will work together. But it also says, specifically, what does our work look like? It looks like we, we want to bring up all of those under our care. When you became a member of this church, you came under the care of this church. And in the same way, as a member of this church, when new members come into the membership of our church, we take on to ourselves a responsibility to care for every single member. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, every member is to receive the same care. No member of the body, no body part can say, I have no need of you. No body part can say, can say, I don't belong. Every body part is needed. No body part is neglected. All members receive the same care. So we are under one another's care. We'll talk a little bit more about this. So we are going to work to bring up, that is to mature, to raise up, to see every single one of us in our body as a whole grow up from being infants to mature adults, spiritually speaking, in two ways. We'll do so in the fear of the Lord, that is in reverencing Him, loving Him, worshiping Him, that we would be growing more and more and having a God-saturated view of all of reality according to His Word. Which leads us to the second one. Not only do we bring up one another in the fear of the Lord, but we also bring up one another in the instruction of the Lord. That all ministry, all faithful ministry in the church is essentially word ministry. It's not just something the pastor does on Sunday. It is a ministry that has been given to all of the members. And as we see in our passage that we're going to look at this morning, it's one that we... The leaders of the church aim to equip you in so that you would be effective in helping each one of us, contributing, working together to help the whole body grow into knowing and enjoying and reflecting and glorifying Christ. That's the goal of our discipling. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're not going to look at this. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in the passage that we're going to be in. In fact, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about this passage and passages that are surrounding it, on Thursday nights, Brother Butch is teaching through the book of Ephesians. You might tune into that. You might find it really helpful. But we're going to just kind of take a quick glance at Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7 through verse 16, and then I'm going to give five or six or seven applications at the end, time permitting. Ephesians chapter 4. As you're turning there, just a little summary of where Paul's been so far in Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul focuses entirely on the grace of God. You have been predestined by God, redeemed by God, and sealed by God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working together. And as he works his way into the beginning of chapter 2, he focuses not only on the grace of God, but the love of God. That great love with which he has loved sinners, that we have been saved by grace. And then in the second half of chapter 2, he moves from the grace of God and the love of God to focus on the people of God. Diverse peoples from diverse backgrounds with dividing walls broken down, all made one in Jesus Christ and being built up as a spiritual temple on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the stone that would be the pattern for all of the other stones in the building. It's the one that patterns how the whole building is put together. It's the model. It's the blueprint. And that's what Jesus is. 
That's why in chapter three, we move from the grace of God to the love of God to the people of God. And finally, Paul reveals the goal of God, and that is that through the church, built on the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus at his cornerstone, saved by the grace of God, enraptured by the love of God, they now reflect the glory of God to all of creation. That's Ephesians 1 through 3. And so now, having touched on all of this, Paul opens up chapter 4, verse 1, with this admonition. Therefore, because of everything that I've just shared with you, you need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what a glorious calling it is. You say, what calling is that? Well, it's everything that preceded it. Chapters 1 through 3. You just spend weeks and weeks and months and months just wallowing in the glory and the grace and the love of God just in those handful of chapters. And he says, in light of all of this, in light of how glorious God is, in light of how gracious God is, in light of how loving God is, in light of all of these things in which you have been called, walk worthily of it. Have your life reflect this reality Well, in chapter 4, he says there in verse 1, to walk worthily. And then you notice in verses 2 through verse 6, if you just scan through that, he's giving this worthy walk, looks like a walk in the context of a local church, and it is a call to unity. You notice that word repeated over and over and over again, seven times, that word one. That though we are many, we are one. We've been made one in Christ. But then notice that Paul moves from the first person in verses four through six, you, or rather second person, you, and now moves to the first person in verse seven of us. He's talking about all of us together. That God has been gracious to save us. We want to walk in a manner worthy of him. That looks like you walking together. But now he says in verse seven, Whoop, my Bible just skipped to Ephesians, or 1 Corinthians. It's like, that's not my verse. There we go. I found it. He says, but grace was given to each one of us. In fact, this change in pronouns in this little passage from and chapter 4 is really significant. Paul moves from you that we saw there in verses 4, 5, and 6 to now encompassing us. We see that in verse 7. If you glance down, you see it again in verse 13 and 14 and 15. Us, we all, we, to finally in verse 15, ending with him. You, us, and to him. That's the progression of the whole chapter. Him ultimately being the goal of the we. Okay? Significant that we're able to see that. He's saying, you are all one body. We have received grace so we can spiritually grow and we are to be growing into Him. That's the logic of this portion of Ephesians chapter 4. And he opens up in verse 7 with that word, see that, but? He's just making sure that even in unity, that he's not talking about uniformity, that there is still diversity in the church, not only diversity of members, but diversity of gifts that have been given according to the measure of Christ's gift. See that there, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Our church will not grow because of our natural talents and abilities. Our church will grow because of Christ's gracious gifts. I would love to do a whole other study on spiritual gifts. I think that would be a worthwhile time. It's beyond the scope of our time this morning. If you want to look more at that, you can look at Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, see what some of those are, the varied gifts that God gives to his church for service to one another. But Paul makes sure from the very beginning to know that if the church is going to grow, that's the goal. You've been one. We're all going to grow. We're going to grow in him. It's going to be because of God's grace to us and giving gifts to that end. Well, in verses 8 through 10, notice this. 
Paul goes back to the Old Testament as he so often does. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended in lower regions? The earth, he who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, he's talking about Christ here, Christ being the one that gives gifts. He's talking about not only his incarnation, that is his descending, but also his ascension and glorification, which is where he is now at the right hand of the Father, giving gifts to those whom he saved for the building up of his church and the reflection of God's glory through it to the world. What he's doing is he's quoting Psalm 68, 18. And just to summarize this section, that here in the Old Testament, gifts were given to only a few. And those few were priests. But those priests were all types and shadows looking forward to the ministry of Jesus Christ, who is the one true and better priest, the high priest. So now in the New Testament, Christ has come, that is, he's descended, and he has ascended And because now we are all in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places, that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, because we are all in Christ, we are now all a priesthood together. First Peter calls, or Peter calls us, a royal priesthood. And because we are all a priesthood together, we have all received gifts. It's not just given to a few, it's given to the whole church. And so the very nature of leadership between the Old Testament and the New Testament has fundamentally changed. The gifts are not just given to a subset of God's people. The gifts are given to all of God's people. And so gospel ministry isn't just given to a few who have been given gifts. Gospel ministry has been given to every member because every member has been given gifts. That means for any of you to say, well, I can't really serve the church because I can't really do what Pastor Jeff does or what Matt does or what Jono does is to move away from the grace of the new covenant and move back to the old covenant. It's to deny the very work of Christ in his church. No, Christ has gifted all believers for the work of the ministry. And that's what we see now in verses 11 and following. That there, this leadership in the New Testament has changed, whereas in the Old Testament, spiritual leaders were the gifted. Now in the New Testament, spiritual leaders train the gifted. Look at this in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. There's all kind of debates about whether these are offices or not. There's all kind of debates about whether or not the apostles and the prophets are still offices enduring today. Even that's beyond our scope this morning. But there's one thing that I do want you to notice, and that is that all five of these mentioned here, whether they're offices or not, are fundamentally word-centered. All of them are concerned with the ministry of the word to the people of God in a variety of different ways. And so that's one thing that we've got to get through our head. That all leadership over the church for the purposes to which God has appointed it is fundamentally word-centered in nature. And notice what the purpose of this word-centered ministry among the apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, or In the Greek, it could even say just shepherd teachers. It is, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what is that ministry? What does this ministry look like? How does Paul define it? Well, he goes on at the end of verse 12 to say, that ministry looks like building up the body of Christ. It is every member putting a hand to a plow to help the whole church grow up from infancy into spiritual adulthood. It's to grow up into Christ, which is why we see in verse 13 what this maturity is supposed to look like, that we are to equip the saints, that is the leaders, equip those who have been gifted, that is the saints, for the work of ministry, everybody doing ministry, so that they might build up the body of Christ. How long and to what end are we to do this? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and a mature manhood. Look at three characterizations of growing through this ministry. There's unity, knowledge, and maturity. Now, all of us would consider knowledge to be a natural part of maturity, and that's right. But maturity is not merely knowledge. 
Maturity is the ability to take that knowledge that you have and apply it in wisdom in such a way to relate well to others. And so to have lots of knowledge and not love others is to not be spiritually mature. I know plenty of believers who know a whole lot of Bible and a whole lot of theology and could not give a wit about loving and serving the least of those in the church. And that is just evidence, despite their knowledge of total spiritual immaturity. Good theology, lacking love, is really bad theology. And so, maturity is not merely the accumulation of knowledge. It is its right and proper application in wisdom, specifically in relation to others. And so it is not just knowledge that goes to maturity, but it is a knowledge that works itself out in greater unity in how we love and serve and support one another. And so a united church is a knowledgeable church. And both of these things, that is unity and knowledge, are essential qualities of a mature church. But I want you to notice in the rest of the passage that this unity and this knowledge is not abstract. He's not just talking about unity for unity's sake or knowledge for knowledge's sake. Each one of them refer to something specific. Look at that. First of all, it is a unity in the faith. You see that there in verse 13? That word faith is not talking about our subjective act of trusting in God, though that's true. I have faith in Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. The faith that Paul's talking about here is an objective body of doctrine centered on the revelation of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Unity in the church is more than doctrine, but it cannot be less. That we begin on what we agree with in terms of who God is, who he's revealed himself to be in his creation, in his word, and ultimately and finally in his son, Jesus Christ. And those things have bearing on not only what Christ has done and how that glorious salvation has been applied to us in each one of our lives, but how it works itself out in our lives toward one another and toward our neighbors until he comes again. The basis of our unity is fundamentally doctrinal, and that is what Paul is saying here, that we have a doctrinal unity. In other words, our unity is not in the quality of our faith. There are some of you in here who are stronger in faith, subjectively speaking, than others in here who perhaps are weak in faith. There are some of you here who went into coronavirus really strong in faith, and yet this season has exposed some things in your heart in such a way that you've perhaps grown weak in faith. And those things can fluctuate because we're sinners living in a world cursed by sin. That is not what Paul's saying. If our unity is based on the fluctuation of the subjective realities of our faith, then unity will be something that will always escape us because we'll always be in different places. Our unity in ever-changing circumstances and in our ever-changing experience of the subjective realities of our faith is rooted in the never-changing realities of Christ and his work on the cross and in his raising from the dead, and his ascension to the Father, and his ongoing ministry to the church and giving us gifts for ministry. We are united in Christ, not in changing circumstances, but in a changeless Savior. But notice it's not just unity, it's also knowledge. And it's specifically, it's a, kind, it's a certain kind of knowledge. It is a knowledge of the Son of God. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes that the church is, he describes it this way, a glorious way to describe the church. The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. You ever think about the church that way? It is the fullness of God who fills everything. The fullness of God who fills all things in Christ. That to be in Christ is to know God. To know God is to be in Christ And that fills everything. Paul says elsewhere, Colossians chapter 1, that in him, that is Jesus, 
The fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you, church, y'all, have been filled in him. And so far as Jesus lacks in nothing, you lack in nothing to do all that God has purposed for us. That's Paul's point. And so just though our faith may wax and wane, that the resources that God gives us in Christ through his spirit never waxes and wanes. It is on full tilt all the time. It never diminishes. And it's a knowledge of specifically the Son of God in whom that grace is found. But this knowledge that it's talking about here, it's, it's not a mere intellectual knowledge. It is also an experiential knowledge. It's what the old Puritans would call experimental religion. That it wasn't merely doctrinal formulations. Those doctrinal formulations just help to describe and to make sense and to sharpen and to clarify a very real fundamental relationship to a very real person to whom we have been united by faith. That is Christ. Many of you have heard this before. There's one thing to know things about your best friend. It's one thing to know things about your spouse. It's one thing to know about your kids. And then it's a whole other thing to know them. Not just to know them, but to know them. To know them intimately and deeply and what it is that they enjoy and they're delighting in you and they're loving you and your love to them, that is the kind of knowledge that he's talking about here. Yes, it's doctrinal, but that doctrinal is meant to lead to the enjoyment of Christ. The two do not, are not opposed to one another. They go hand in hand. And so spiritual maturity is marked ultimately in our church by doctrinal unity that works itself out in the knowledge, knowing of Christ. That we know Him and we love Him and we want to serve Him and we want to enjoy Him and I want everybody else to do the same and we're all in this together to that end. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the ministry to which you have already been gifted if you are in Christ and been given His Spirit. And so I hope it's able to be clear to you at this point in Ephesians 4 that spiritual maturity is not merely an individual reality. It is a corporate reality. I fear too many of us habitually read our Bible through individualistic lenses when the reality is, is that the vast majority of our Bible needs to be read through local church lenses through communal lenses. Paul is writing to churches comprised of individuals, but never in any way conceiving of those individuals being divorced from a body. So he is having a conversation with a body. This is body talk. It is a corporate reality that includes growing in sound doctrine together, centered upon knowing and enjoying Christ together. And so we, as we see here, will better understand what this maturity is if we can understand what this maturity is not. We can better understand what we should be if we better understand what we would be apart from God's grace. Look at verse 14. He calls us to maturity so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What does a spiritually immature person look like? They look like my kids in the ocean. We love going to the beach. Our kids go running out in the waves. The waves come up. Boom! Knocked flat on their back. That if they play out there long enough, the waves which never come directly in are always going right or left one way or the other. You know what I'm talking about? They go out there and they start playing in a matter of minutes. They just start drifting away from mama and daddy. Next thing you know, they're halfway down the beach. Why? Because they're waifs. The waves carry them away. 
They haven't been built up. They're not big. They're not strong. And so the waves easily toss them around and they easily carry them away. He says that's what spiritual immaturity looks like. It's being a waif-like infant in waves, being tossed to and fro and easily carried away by any kind of of opinion, of cunning doctrine, of any kind of counterfeit experience, of anything else out there. But this is what spiritual immaturity looks like. James 1 describes this person as a double-minded man, one who is full of doubt. Now, that doesn't mean that doubting people can't be Christians. I love that Jude tells us to be gentle with the one who doubts. And all of us in one way or the other have been there or are there. But to grow in maturity is to no longer be tossed to and fro like a double-minded man, constantly conflicted about God and his word and, and the world, pulled in one direction and pulled in the other. That's why James writes later on after talking about that, that, <clears throat> that, that we are to set our minds on those things above because the world is passing away. The double-minded man sets himself on those things that are passing away and so is carried away easily, being tossed to and fro. It's interesting, Jude, verse 13, talks about apostates as those who are like wild waves of the sea. It's amazing to me, I saw this week a number of popular lead singers for Christian bands come out and say, we don't really believe in God anymore. And this is an important lesson for us. Simply having a big platform does not mean that you're spiritually mature. It may mean if you are in fact spiritually immature that you will get so tossed around that you may wake up one day and go, I don't even know that I believe in God at all. That's Jude's point. And so there is an urgency to we have got to grow up. Because if I let my kids go play in the surf all by themselves, I ain't gonna see them again. I've gotta protect them. I've gotta be with them. I've gotta bring them back when they drift. I've gotta pick them up when they fall. That's what it looks like for the strong in the church to bear with the weak. For the weak to depend on the strong. And there are times when all of us are the strong, some of us are the strong ones and others are the weak. There are times when we are weak and we need others who are strong. All of us are strong and weak at various times and we need the body of Christ in that so that we would not be like a church full of spiritual infants. That's why I love that Jono prayed earlier, oh, that we would long for the spiritual milk so that we would grow up from infancy. That we wouldn't be babies anymore. The whole point of giving a baby spiritual milk is so that they don't drink milk forever. If they stay on milk forever, they're not going to grow. They're going to end up becoming malnourished and underdeveloped. Milk is good for a time, but milk has got to give way to meat eventually. And that's our goal for all of us is that we would be growing. We wouldn't remain as babies. And so how is this to happen? Because the reality is, is that if we don't know the Bible, if we're not deeply rooted in sound doctrine that calibrates and defines our knowledge and experience of God and Christ together, then we won't be able to identify false teachers and we won't be able to discern false experiences, those experiences that are contrary to the word of God. And so how do we then grow up and stop being, no longer be, the babies that we see in chapter and verse 14, we see it in verses 15 and 16. Rather, that is, rather than being babies, rather than giving in to deceitful, literally errant schemes, he's saying, rather than giving in to error, speak the truth. No error, let's be about truth. No craftiness, no human coming, cunning, let's be about love. We are to speak the truth in love. And notice that this isn't optional. We are to grow up in every way. Paul expects this to be the case. That if a church is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, according to the gifts that he has given in Christ, engaging one another in ministry, the church will grow. It must grow, is Paul's attitude here. 
And notice that he grows up into every way into him. Into who? Into Christ. That is ultimately the goal of our growth. The goal of our growth is not to have a big church. The goal of our growth is not to have a bigger budget. The goal of our growth as a church is not to have the respect of the, of the world or the culture. The goal of our growth is to know, enjoy, and to resemble Christ. That is what we are growing into. That's why Paul uses the image of Christ is the head, we are the body. Wherever the head goes, we go. The head turns, we go with it. That's what a mature body looks like. That's why when you have a baby, the head and the body, they don't really connect real well. You got little baby bobbleheads. Body's going one way, head's going the other way. What does it look like when that infant matures? It looks like the body submits to the head and goes where the head goes. There is a unity, a, a synergy to the whole thing. And that's Paul's application here. That we want to grow up in the one who is our head, that is Christ, so that wherever he goes, we go. And it's the whole body. I love that language because this is the description of the ministry, whole body ministry, in which each part, whole body, each part, working properly so that the body grows and builds itself up in love. That is the ministry that God has given to our church. That is what it looks like to work together to bring up every single one under our care in the fear and instruction of the Lord. It's not just the job of a select subset of the church. It's not the pastor's job. Our job is to equip you to do this. If it's up to me to do all the ministry in the church, if it's up to John to do all the ministry of the church, we're going to remain an infantile church. We want to equip the saints for the work of the ministry according to the gifts that God has given in Christ, not according to our natural talents, so that as we grow and as we engage in word ministry to one another, encouraging one another, teaching one another, instructing one another, we would look more and more and more like Christ. And in looking more and more and more like Christ as a church, we'd be able to stand firm in the middle of the waves and not be knocked down and not be carried away by the world. That we would... Stand firm until Christ comes. That's the goal. And so God has given gifts to the church. God has given leaders to the church so that every member of the church might be equipped for ministry. And this ministry, the ministry of each member, is fundamentally a word ministry. It is a, verse 15, a speaking ministry. It is a truth-speaking ministry aimed at encouraging and teaching and correcting and rebuking and comforting and counseling one another with the Word of God. Yes, we want to talk about the circumstances going on in our life. Yes, we want to talk about the circumstances of our marriages. Yes, we want to talk about the circumstances of our jobs. Yes, we want to talk about the circumstances of our, of our children and our parenting. Yes, we want to talk about how we're doing in coronavirus. And we want to talk about politics. And we want to talk about all of those kinds of things. But those things are not ends in and of themselves. Those things are gateways to deeper, more significant conversations that we need to be having as we take dead aim with the Word of God to the heart of our brothers and sisters. That, that living and active word that exposes us and gets deeper than, than anything else can get down to the bones and the marrow of who we are to show us our weaknesses and infirmities, to show us our idolatry and our sin so that we would no longer lean on the world, so that we might turn from it and trust in and treasure Christ more. And we would do that over and over and over and over and over again. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his helpful little book, Life Together, calls every member of the church a bringer of the message message of salvation to one another. We preach the gospel to one another. That's what we do. It's my job to equip you to do that. It's your job to do that among one another. And if any point I start teaching a false gospel, it's your job to get rid of me. 
I've got to teach you so well according to the word of God about the truth of the gospel that you can sniff a false gospel from a mile away and go, we're not having it. We will stand firm because that is the ministry that you have been called to as members of this church. I can't think of anything more thrilling than that. It's not your personality. It's not all your natural gifts. It's not how great you are. It's not how charismatic you are. It's not whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. The Bible has no category for that. Yes, God has made each one of you individually according to his providence. You are the way that you are. But even in all of those things, we are all disciples together. The whole body engaged in this kind of ministry, building one another up in love. Our hope, our goal, our prayer, our labor is that we would have a church where every disciple is discipling and there are no undiscipled disciples. Because that's what we see in the Bible. That may not have been what you experienced in your church growing up. I'm not concerned about what you saw in your church growing up. I'm concerned about what we see in the Word of God. And I want our church to conform itself to that more and more by God's grace over a really long period of time that he would find us faithful. So how do we do this? Let me give you a handful of applications. Handful of applications. Number one, spiritual growth is a community project. No Christian grows in isolation from other Christians. If one day the leg decides to be better off without the body, I can run faster without the rest of this body slowing me down and runs off on its own, it will eventually grow necrotic and die. And so it is with the individual parts of the body of Christ. That the whole body builds itself up, works together, feeds itself together. It is a system spiritually speaking, mutually feeding, mutually caring, mutually edifying. The individualism of our culture would make you believe that if you just had a good personal quiet time and you could find a handful of really good books to study by yourself in isolation, that's all you need in order to grow in grace and that is a lie. You might grow a little bit, you might grow in knowledge a little bit. But you will not grow in maturity a little bit because the knowledge that you're gaining in God's word and of who Christ is is meant to be worked itself out, tested and buffed against the brothers and sisters in a local church in the way that we love one another, guard one another, and encourage one another. Remember what, is, what Paul said earlier in Ephesians 4? It's not just knowledge, it's unity. It is knowledge rightly applied and rightly relating to other people who are very different from us. And so I know, as I say often, some of you walk in and you look around and you go, I don't know these people. It seems to me that we don't have anything earthly in common. But if you are in Christ, and we are in Christ, and we have all things in common, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor freeman, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. So we need to change our thinking. We need to have our minds conformed to the mind of God. We need to have our minds brought into the framework in the world of the Bible. In the world of the Bible, specifically the New Testament, is church first, individual second. When we think about spiritual growth. Paul is not talking ultimately about the growth of individual members. He is talking about the growth of the church. And as the church grows, the individual members grow. If every member is trying to grow in isolation from one another, the church doesn't grow and the individuals don't grow. It is a community project. Now I realize this is really hard when we're quarantined. It means the typical ways that we go about trying to relate to one another aren't available to us. It means that we've got to get creative and it's very easy for all of us to become out, for, for other members to be out of sight and out of mind. It's happened to me too and I'm the pastor. Okay? Out of sight, out of mind. And we find ourselves isolated from other brothers and sisters living on an island of one or perhaps an island of just our family. 
And we have to labor to remember that though we don't gather yet completely, and though we are waiting for brothers and sisters to come yet one day, and I pray the Lord brings it soon, that we are still a body united in Christ, committed to one another, to work together to bring up everyone under our care in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Everyone receiving the, the, the same care. And so we've got to leverage our cell phones and our emails and our Facebook accounts to that end. This is why, secondly, not only is spiritual growth a community project, but church membership is essential. If you have a bunch of Christians who have no committed or formal relationships with any other Christians, then when you get into really hard times like this, those Christians feel no specific obligation to any particular group of Christians at all. That a lack of formal membership, a lack of formal commitment to a particular body of believers in a particular place will end up in seasons and times like this leading to a concern ultimately for no one. My old mentor, Pastor Mark Dever, said this, joining a church increases our sense of ownership of the work of the church. That's Ephesians 4. Of its community, of its budget, and of its goals. That we move from being pampered consumers to becoming joyous proprietors. We stop arriving late and complaining that we don't get exactly what we want, and instead we arrive early and we try to help others with what they need. We must begin to view membership less as a loose affiliation, useful only on occasion, and more as a regular responsibility, becoming involved in one another's lives for the purpose of the gospel. Church membership isn't about throwing a rock in a bucket. Church membership isn't like a Sam's membership or a gym membership. Well, maybe you go, maybe you don't. At the end of the day, you paid your bills. You can do what you want. If you choose to use it, great. If you don't, great. That is not the way the Bible envisions the body of Christ. That when you were baptized, you were brought into a body. You as one were brought into the many. And you cannot uncouple yourself from the many. Because, as we see earlier in Ephesians 4, we have one baptism. That's what we share. The one is brought in to the many. And when we are all able to come together again, we'll take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, what we're declaring is that the many are one. Baptism shows that the one comes into the many. The Lord's Supper shows that the many are one. But what you cannot escape in the world and the mind of the Bible is the many are one. That there is no such thing as an unchurched Christian. The Bible has no category for it. That we are all saved out of one thing and saved into another. Out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Out of isolation and individualism and selfishness. And into a community of love and service and sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of the world. So church membership is essential. Third, rely on God's grace, not your natural gifts. There may be some of you in here that go, I just can't do what Pastor Jeff does. If everybody here did what Pastor Jeff does, we would be a really deformed, weak, infantile church. That all of us have been given by God's, prom by God's providences, Different personalities and different varied gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he's given each one of us various gifts that are not fundamentally built into your human DNA. They are gifts from Christ that you did not have prior to being saved. And those gifts given by Christ through the Spirit to you are aimed specifically at the building up of the body of Christ. And so as we do hospitality, as we do service, as we do as we do teaching, as, as however it is that the Lord has gifted you. Know that the gift is not ultimately for your own personal fulfillment. Oh, if I could just figure out my gift, then I'll really be fulfilled spiritually. That is not the goal of spiritual gifts. 
Oh, if I could just fill out the bubble sheet and find out my gift, I would know exactly where I need to serve. And once I know how to serve, well, then I'll be a a complete Christian. No, that's not how those work. The whole goal of the way that God has gifted you by your spirit is to build up the body of Christ. It is not self-centered, it is other-centered, always moving you to other people. You say, well, how do I know how I've been gifted? I'll be honest with you. My experiences at bubble sheets aren't real helpful. I've taken lots of bubble tests to find out how I'm spiritually gifted, and I can manipulate every single one of them so that I can get the gifting that I want. You want to know how you're gifted? See a need and meet a need. And as you do that, as you find yourself gravitating towards spiritual and physical needs in our church, you're going to find how God in his grace has strengthened and gifted you for the building up of the body of Christ. It just compels us to gravitate toward other people, see a need, meet a need, and trust that the Lord has gifted you to do that. He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So rely on God's grace, not your natural gifts. It's not your charisma. It's not how smart you are. Here's the reality. Some of us are more charismatic than others. Some of us are smarter than others. Some of us are, this is just reality, all right? As much as we'd like to believe that everybody gets a participation trophy and nobody's any different, that's not the truth. We're diverse in a physical and a materialistic sense according to the world's definitions. We are fundamentally different and we are given gifts according to God's very grace. At the end of the day, we don't measure ourselves up against one another according to who has what gifts and what gifts are best. Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for that. It is going, look how God in his grace has gifted each one of us. No gift is better than the other. Every gift goes to the same goal and the goal is ultimately what we're all about and that is building up the body and the maturity that is into our head, Jesus Christ. So rely on God's grace, not your natural gifts. Fourthly, serve the church you have, not the church you wish you had. Bonhoeffer says this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. Even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. You may look around this church and you may go, boy, I sure wish that this church was this way or that way. I sure wish we had more older members so that me, a younger member, could be better discipled and and encouraged and mentored. You may be an older member going, I'm looking around and it's all these young people and they don't really know what to do with me and I'm trying to figure that out. And, and, And you may look around And you may think, well, Jeff doesn't really preach exactly the way that I like and maybe it's a little bit too long and maybe he yells a little bit too much and and he certainly hasn't called me enough and I'd really like to have more of a relationship with him but I just haven't really been able to connect with him as much or as often as I would really like and and I just don't really feel shepherded by him and the other elders and, and, and it could be anything, it could be anything. And at the end of the day, what it all is is us going, I've got this idea in my head of what this church should be and that church ultimately serves to meet my ideals and my needs, but it's not just going, I'm in this city, in this church, with these people and this is where we are and relative to that, I'm gonna pour myself in and serve and lay down my life for my brothers and sisters. It just doesn't, let me put it this way. Living in Denton, we live in a transient city. We've been a church for six years. 35% of the members who have come into our church have since left our church. People come, people go. That also means that we get a lot of members into our church that have had experiences at other church. Sometimes those experiences aren't so great. Sometimes those experiences are really great. I think one temptation for all of us, either negatively on one side or the other, is to assume that our past experiences 
of our church and of fellow members and of pastors will either should in one way or the other or will in one way or the other dictate our present experience. And so I've been hurt by other members. I've been hurt by other pastors. And so I just assume that that's just the way pastors are and that's the way other members are and I'm just going to keep my distance despite what we've been commanded to do and to be to one another. Or perhaps on the other hand, you've had a great experience and you had a great relationship with your former pastor and you had just this deep, vital community and you come here and you go, making relationships has been a little bit harder and all of a sudden you start to stand in judgment over the rest of the body as if they're just not loving enough, they're just not mature enough, they're not as committed to the Bible, not as committed to discipleship, not as committed to the things that you're committed to and I would go, you need to stop for just a minute. Every church is different. Every group of members is different. Our job when we come into a new community, a new body, is not to go, this church should be like my experience. It's not to look at our past experience and say, this is what God in his grace has used to cause me to grow. Therefore, this must be the way that every believer must grow. And if it's not, it's somehow unhealthy. It's to say, I'm in a church where the word is being faithfully preached, where the members are laboring relative to their seasons of life, giftedness, to love, encourage, and serve one another. It looks a lot different. The city's different. My church is different. These people are different. Relationships have been slow. I've had this conversation over and over and over again over six years. And instead, it's turning around and going, those things can inadvertently, without our realizing it, create these wish dreams. And those wish dreams put our cause us to stand on a pedestal and become not servants of the church, but judgers of the church. Constantly criticizing, constantly judging. That is not what we've been called to do. Serve the church. By the way, this is true of pastors as well. My job is to pastor the church that God in his grace has given me, not the church that I wish I had or the church that I thought I would have when I drew up the church plant prospectus six and a half years ago. I look back at that now and I just go, don't look anything like it. It's not the way I drew it up, but the way that God draws it up is so much better. You're here in this body by God's providence because God knows what's best for you and he knows what's best for this church. And your being in this church is what's best for this church and you're dying to a wish dream and loving these people where they're at in the ways that they've been gifted, however it is that works, pouring yourself out, laying down your life, dying to, to your own concerns all the time. That is the way that the church will grow as we all seek to do that together. So love the church that you have. Serve the church that you have, not the church that you wish you had. I don't know what number I'm on now. What number am I on? Five? Fifthly, commit yourself to being equipped by your leaders. Every pastor has an obligation to every member of his church. But members of the church have obligations to their pastors as well. And one of the ways that members of the church help pastors fulfill their calling and their obligation is to make every effort to be where those pastors are when they aim to equip the church for the work of the ministries we see in Ephesians 4. That means that in some way you're going to have to conform your life to where we are as we attempt to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that we might grow up in maturity as a church. It also means that we as elders have to give careful, patient, and gracious concern to where all of the members are relative to their seasons of life and not think that there's one perfect structure out there so that we can meet you guys where you are at so that we can equip the saints for the work of the ministry and we're working together. Leaders, training, equipping, serving, members, members being equipped so that they might serve one another. And so however that is, listen, I'll give you an example. Wednesday night may not ultimately be the best time for our church to study and be equipped as elders were thinking and praying through. Whether or not that needs to change, we're perfectly okay with that changing. But there are times where the elders have set aside time to go, we're going to labor to equip the church for the work of the ministry as they scatter throughout the week and help one another follow Jesus. And we don't do it very often. And we don't do it just because we love spending extra time on a Wednesday night teaching to a camera. We do it because of what we see in Ephesians chapter four. That God has given us to you to equip you for the work of the ministry and God has given you to us 
so that you might be equipped. So that we might instruct you so that you would be instructed. The members of a church should be as eager to be instructed as the leaders are to instruct. We need to grow in wisdom and discernment relative to our church, not the church we wish we had, but to the church that we have to do that well at effective and discerning times. And our members need to grow in grace in the way that each one of you seek to organize your life to be in fellowship with other members and to be equipped for the work of the ministry by the elders of our church. Sixthly, become an expository listener. We're committed to expositional preaching. What that means is that every time we open to a book of the Bible, a passage in the Bible, like we did in Ephesians 4, we want the point of the, the, point of the passage to be the point of the message. The temptation is to come in and go, okay, yeah, 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 there's some good truth nuggets there. Give me some good applications so I can go, you know, apply that to my life on Monday. But I'm going to encourage you to be an expository listener, to have your Bible open, to look at it, to go, is in fact the point of the message the point of the passage? And if this is in fact the point of the passage, how do I apply that not only to my life, but how do I help apply it to the lives of my brothers and sisters? To be an expository listener is not just to listen for yourself, it is to listen for your brothers and sisters. It is to recognize that that which is being poured into you through the preaching and the teaching ministry of this church is not meant to come into you like a cul-de-sac and stop. It is meant to go through you like a thoroughfare so that you might be able to best encourage, exhort, correct, rebuke, comfort, and counsel the fellow members of this church. And so in the same way that I need to be growing as a preacher of God's word, every member of this church needs to be growing as listeners of God's word so that all of us might grow up and be more effective in ministry. If you don't know how to do that, I've got some helpful little books in the back by Christopher Ashe on just how to listen to a sermon. It's, a, it's, it's superb. If you want one of those, just let me know and I'll toss it six feet away. And you can go grab it. Lastly, final application. Be patient. All of us wish that our discipleship was more microwave than crockpot. We wish that if we just gotten just the right study and just the right accountability group, if we could hear just the right sermon or have Matt play just the right songs, then all of a sudden it's like miracle grow. That's not the way that it works. That's why James says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient. There will never be a point in this life where you will be a finished product. That the work of the kingdom is often slower than we think it should be, and it's easy to overlook. That's why Jesus gives the parable in Matthew, Mark chapter 4 that we go back to often of the sower. The disciples are looking around and going, if you're the Messiah and this is really the true gospel, why ain't everything working out quite the way that it should be? Why isn't the whole world coming into the kingdom of Christ? Why do we want to kill you? He's going, that's not the way the word works. He says the word is like a seed. Sower goes out and he sows it. And he sows it day and night. Day and night. The language in the text is so methodical. And then it says something happens. The earth bears fruit. The word is automatos in Greek. Automatically, apart from the sowing techniques, apart from the talent of the sower, he just sows. And in God's time, according to God's providence, whoop, it starts to bear fruit. That is the way that the word works. And so if you're frustrated that you've been meeting with another brother or sister, and boy, you feel like you've been having the same conversation over and over and over and over again, be patient. If you look at your own life and you're frustrated that that same besetting sin just comes back over and over and over and over again, despite the desire to have it gone and despite the desire to have a desire to have it gone, be patient. Let the word do its work in you.
Trust that the word will do its work in God's people. And brothers and sisters, let's just keep sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing into one another because God's word will not return void. All of us have been given this word ministry. It's our job to equip you. It's your job to be faithful in it. It'll look and change based on seasons of life and size of church and all those kinds of things. New members will come. Old members will go. We'll constantly flex. But at the very base of it, we are committed to helping one another follow Christ. Committing to one another in spiritual friendships, grounded on God's word, headed in a Christward direction over a really long period of time in the context of a local church. That's discipleship. That is what we've committed to do. Pray with me to that end.